Well, as we wind down our time here in Luke chapter 24, as I said to you, it's um, written beautifully and um, an incredible story that is being told here in the 24th chapter, really an encapsulation of the entire gospel account. What works here um, towards the end, two major pieces stand out for Luke as he's expressing to you um, what it means to be a Christian and what marks the life of a Christian, and those two aspects are word and sacrament. These are the aspects of the ongoing center or epicenter of the Christian experience um, for your entire pilgrim's journey, right? So, so Clopas and his wife, Mary, they're on the way to Emmaus, right? That's the movement. They're, they're pilgrims on a journey. They're on the way to Emmaus. And then what's, what's fascinating is that they're on the way with he who is the way, the truth, and the life. This is the pilgrim's journey encapsulated in Luke 24. And on the way from place to place in your pilgrim's journey, from redemption here in time to ultimate salvation here in the eschatological end, this time in these last days is you, pilgrim, on the way. And, and so what will nourish you, pilgrim, on the way? Word and sacrament. As Calvin has said, and so often we speak when we serve the table, in the moments of fencing the table, in speaking forward, a careful word concerning the nature of the table, we consistently put forward the same portrait that Luke's giving us. We hear him in the word, Calvin says. And we see him in the table. This is the visual object lesson of redemption that we're given. That, that is the, his condescension to us, the doubting Thomases, where we would just believe a little bit more if we could see a little bit more. What we see is given us in the breaking of the bread and the pouring of the wine. These two means of grace nourish the pilgrim on the way. And that's what we have here in the text. Now, as we join back into this passage this morning of them, disciples, being on the way with he who is the way, and he'll make that clear to them in the breaking of the bread. But at this moment in the story, um, so far, they're coming up upon evening time, a roughly seven-mile journey between where they are at Jerusalem in verse 1 of the chapter, the very first day of the week, so third day, that is the first now day considered, and to the believers, to the Christian community, the first day of the week, marking Lord's Day. Here they are moving toward Emmaus on this journey with who they think is an uninitiated stranger. This guy who comes walking up to them and says to them, what are you talking about? I can kind of overhear the discussion. What are these things that you're talking about? And so then they begin to lay out the details. Are you kidding me, right? You're the only person in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here today. I was speaking of that briefly last week, and one of my children comes up to me on uh, Monday or Tuesday and says, Hey, Dad, that was quite a burn that Jesus gave to Clopas when he said, No, I'm the only one who does know what was happening here in these things. Um, And so maybe it's a burn, maybe it's not. 
but that is indeed unto Clopas who says, are you the only one who doesn't get the significance of what's going on? And he says, yes, well, uh, you tell me then what's going on. You, you take me right through the cadence of these events. Tell me the sequence of events. Tell me who it is that was hung on that cross. Tell me who it is who was buried. And so you can help me understand the significance of these things that have happened. By the time he gets through hearing them speak to him about these things that have happened, he then gives them a rebuke and a correction to the weakness of their faith. Look at the end event. I'll just begin in verse 19 to recap where we're at as we move forward. And he said to them, what things? And they said back, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Tell me who he was. He was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word. We saw his miracles. The Spirit was upon him. We heard him preach. He was mighty in word and in deed before God and everybody. And, and what more do you have to say of these things? Well, how our chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. They crucified him. That's what we're talking about. But we had hoped even more yet that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day. You see, so the question then begins in the text, will they understand the significance of the third day? The fulfillment of the third day. You remember the angels. Don't you remember what he told you while you were still in Galilee? This, this would happen, and on the third day, this would happen? And he says, and moreover, yet yeah, you won't believe it. It's been three days. Yes, it is. It's the third day. Well, just tell me these things that you speak of, verse 22, moreover. Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had told them he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but it wasn't exciting other than it was a bit confusing. You see how he frames it at the very end. This is, this is Clopas' view of the resurrection. It's still a complete haze and fog. We were hoping at least to locate a body. At this point in time, again, you know that they're sad, so they're not embracing the thought that he has been raised in victory. At this point in time, he's saying, well, they went to the tomb, and either which way, alive or dead, we have no idea where he is. So, so we saw a Lennon shroud and no body. We had hoped that he was this and was going to do this work, and now we have nothing, not even a dead body. And then they're saying this to this stranger. And verse um, 25, then, is his response. A stranger, remember, at this point, a total stranger to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So he pins them down on these things that they are explaining to him. And you'll notice how he then systematically reconstructs the entire thing, right? So, so he asks them, you tell me what you think is going on here. Well, all right, I'll tell you. And then he finds right at the point where he needs to penetrate 
and then begin reconstructing the thought of the significance of these things. You're, you're, you're totally missing it. And, and then where does he go? Verse um, 27. And beginning with Moses. So he goes way back. And to all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as to which texts in the Old Testament Jesus used to explain his death and resurrection in the events, we're not told. Right? He just says he went all the way back to beginning with Moses. At that point in time, you, you can wrap your mind around at least the Pentateuch. So, so we're somewhere in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, that, that would be considered this point, the designation to the, to, to the disciples. He went to Moses, this, this body of literature here. And then he moved on to the next division, which would be the prophetic books of your Old Testament. So what particular text do you think? Which one specifically did he go to explain the death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah? We are not told. But the implication that Luke leaves us with by not telling us is that it doesn't matter. This is significant for Christian interpretation of Scripture, for your reading of the Bible, for mine, for the way we even view what is from Genesis to Revelation. What is the epicenter of Holy Scripture? Luke says he went to Moses and he went to the prophets and to all the scriptures explaining things concerning himself. What verse? Which one stands out? It doesn't matter. You see, only when we see the Old Testament as reaching its natural climax in Jesus will we have understood it at all. That's the implication. Is that Jesus is the center of the Old Testament. He is the center of the New Testament. He is the center of God's revelation to his people. Look over just briefly at John 5. I I just want to touch on this just briefly. um, So you can see in the ministry of our Lord as well. It wasn't just at this last minute where he said, hey, by the way, the Old Testament speaks about me. And they're like, what? And I I would have never thought. Notice it is when he was being mighty in word and in deed during the course of his ministry, this also was an aspect of his teaching ministry. How do I read my Old Testament? With me in view. It speaks of me. I am its absolute terminal point. If you're in John 5, look at verse 39 as he speaks. You search the scriptures. That's the same thing. Moses, prophets, the threefold division of your Old Testament text. Whatever is in circulation at that point. What they're doing at temple in worship. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, that is, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. On the grounds of this, moment, uh, this momentary interaction, there is one who accuses you already. Do you see that? Verse 45. And it is Moses on whom you have set your hope. Now, how can can I be rebuked by reading Moses and setting my hope on Moses? It's how you're reading Moses. Verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe in me. 
for he wrote of me. One author speaks as we turn back then to Luke 24, just again to see that it doesn't matter which text we look at. Every text we look at centers upon the completion, life, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One author says, we only understand Jesus himself when we see him as the one to whom Scripture points. Not in isolated proof texts. Like, oh, you can really tell in some of the Psalms. You can really tell it's probably speaking about Jesus. But rather, not in isolated proof texts, but in the entire flow of redemptive history. And when we grasp this, we, like Clopas and Mary, will find our hearts burning within us. And this is Luke's precise point. The entire Bible that you read is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why he adds, and all the scriptures. Now, notice how the scene then moves forward with the stranger now. The the scene is going to move forward. After he got done with this rebuke, this admonishment to reread your Bible, everything in it is about the things that you seem currently confused about. Verse 28, it moves forward in time. Remember, there are pilgrims on the way to a destination point. It started in verse 13, that very day they left for Emmaus. Verse 28 picks back up in this time continuum. So they drew near to the village that they were already going toward. He acted, now now this is a part of, of intrigue to the story, a point of interest. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He, that is the stranger, acted as if he were going farther. Now, why? Why the little bit of intrigue about why the posturing? Why is the stranger acting as if he is going to go a little bit farther? That He didn't know they were stopping off at Emmaus, and he's just going to act like he's still walking down the street. Why? Why the movement? Why act as if you're going to go a little farther? The answer has to be connected with verse 26 and 27. In other words, he is checking to see if they are receptive to his exposition of the scriptures. He just explained to them from the beginning to the ending. And he wants to see their receptivity toward it. We're confused. Well, let me explain. The lingering question then is, what's the response? Look at verse 29. As we ask, what will their response be? Will they understand the significance of the third day? Isn't it amazing? If you see that in verse 21, yes, besides all of this that's happened, it's now the third day. Amazing. And so he explains to them everything. And will they come to recognize the significance of the third day? Verse 28 and 29 then follow. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. 
For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. Now, we, we know why. Why they urged him strongly. Whoa, 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 where are you going? We were devastated about three hours ago. Right, you saw that in the text where he, where he drew unto them. Um, where, do you, where do you see it? Where, right at the very end of verse 17, and they still stood still when he asked, what are you talking about? Looking sad. We were devastated a few hours ago, and we told you about what happened in Jerusalem, and you told us from the scriptures what it all meant. Whoa, 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 where are you going? Stay with us. Now, you know that's their response because verse 32, of which we'll get to in just a couple of moments, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? While he was talking to us on the road, while we were on the way, pilgrims on the way, and he spoke the word of life to us, did not our hearts burn while he opened to us the scriptures? So he's explaining the significance of his person. From Moses to Revelation, Moses to Luke, Moses through the Psalms. This is what it means. And the hearer's heart is burning within them. And so as he checks the receptivity, as he walks as if he were going to go a little further, they lay hold of him. Wait, stay with us. And then they say it now, they don't say, because as you speak, our hearts are burning within us. They say, you know, the day is getting far spent. It's kind of getting late. You should probably just stay with us. But we know as the church of Christ, you and I together, we both know as pilgrims on the way ourselves, we know the effective power of the preached word in each of our lives. You can't imagine what it was like, but yet you kind of can that day in Emmaus. Jesus directly speaking to his people the significance of his word, and yet now he does it regularly through the ministry of preachers. He communicates effectively his word to each of us who in faith believe. And that preaching is transformative in all of our lives. It's the means of grace to every pilgrim, is the word that comes to us in the hearing of the promises of God in Christ. Each of us, some more moments than others, but each of us as pilgrims have experienced our hearts burning within us. So we can understand, certainly, our Lord speaking directly to them. Right? I mean, the most amazing small group Bible study ever is that standing there on the way to Emmaus. And he explains to them covenantally every bit of the fabric of Holy Scripture. Can you, ama- can you imagine? The response is predictable. Your heart would burn within you. When Calvin was asked, where does a true church exist? Right? And in the time of the Reformation, it's a little bit more controversial, right? Obviously, at that point, it's quite controversial on the idea of where does a true church exist? Does a true church even exist anymore? At the point of Reformation, 
the question posed to Calvin. Where does a true church then exist? If it's not in Rome, it's not here, and it's not in this cathedral, where then does it even exist at all? Calvin, in response, says this, quote, Wherever the word of God is rightly preached and the sacraments faithfully administered, Therein lies a true church. And that's what we see here in in Luke 24. That the church is indeed responsive to the word of God rightly preached. How more so on the road to Emmaus, John 10. My sheep hear my voice. How do you hear it now? Not in the quiet, still place of the garden. You don't hear him whispering to you. You don't hear him speaking to you in dreams. And in the quiet place, you hear him preach to you. You hear it come to you from outside of you, promises extended to you to lay hold of by faith. He speaks to you through preaching. That's the voice. John 10, my sheep hear it. So he, so he walks as if he's going a little bit further. Wait! Our hearts are burning within us. Stay with us tonight. Jesus continues to say, and I know them. And then the the necessary response to a sheep who hears his voice, and he who knows that sheep, the response is natural, isn't it? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And the inevitable, necessary outcome, they follow me. Now, things get interesting as the scene develops. We're now at Emmaus at the point, and they're asking him, stay with us, right? The night is getting long. What what do you have to rush off to be about? Stay with us. It's dangerous out there walking alone in the evenings. Just stay with us a little while. And now things are going to really get interesting as they approach the table. And this is where the point of the text just totally shifts, right? So the stranger um, has become the teacher. What are you talking about? Uh, what things? Oh, let me tell you the things. Oh, okay, well, and then he explains all the things to them by the end of that conversation. So he moves from stranger questioner to teacher and instructor. Now, scene number two is at table, a guest. Stay with us. It's better for you. Um, Stay with us this evening. Be our guest. And in a moment, he becomes the host. And this is where the meal, which is kind of regular through Luke, where meals are these moments of massive revelation. And this is indeed the most significant revelation of all at this meal as our Lord, an invited guest, becomes the host. Look at verses um, uh, 28, and I'll read through 31. So they drew near to the village, the pilgrims on the way, to the village they were going. He acted as if he were going a little bit further, but they urged him strongly Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table, he took the bread. Do you see, already at that, at that moment, that, that, that wouldn't have been his role as an invited guest. Sit, eat, drink, fellowship, let us serve you. You're our guest he would not have initiated the taking of the bread. The order 
is wrong. So notice, when he was at table with them, he took the bread. Who knows what they're thinking at this point in time? And then he blessed it. Wait a minute, we're the host. Let, no, no, he took the bread and he blessed it. And then he broke it. And then he gave it to them. Notice the next piece in the text, which is the most transformative moment for both Clopas and his wife. The result of what he had just done as host of the meal, verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, I, I, I broke early how I wanted to read that. So, so I want to I reread it because I, I think it will to you as it does also for me. And I think the intent is absolutely there. Let me reread it and think in your mind where you have heard this before. Okay? So, I, so I'm going I'm I'm to read this because we're going to share a moment. Is everybody ready? <laughs> we're going we're to share a moment. I'm going to reread that text, and we're both going to look at each other and think, oh, I know exactly what this is describing. Or I'm crazy, and you, you didn't go down the path with me. So let me try to draw you there. Verse 30. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Now, by the looks in the audience, I'm glad we're not a small group writing the questions right now. No one would know. Someone in here sees it. There are two, think about it, there are two significant moments in the text of Scripture that you can recall if we were to go back up into the text and begin with Moses, which our Lord just did, and beginning with Moses. He explained to them what all these things mean. There is recorded in Scripture the very first creational meal where the story of redemption began. Do you remember beginning with Moses, the very first recorded meal of creation? Let me read it for you. Because it's echoed right here in this passage. Genesis 3, 6. She took of its fruit. She ate. She gave to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Now, so when they were at table, he, he, he was with them. He took bread. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it to them, and their eyes were open. She took. She ate. She gave. They ate, and eyes of both of them were opened. You see, in creation's very first recorded meal, the eyes of Adam and Eve were opened to the disastrous consequences of new revelation. Their eyes were opened to see. And what they saw now was sin. 
and death and decay. In the very first created meal, creational meal, the whole creation was now subjected to futility, hardship, and sorrow. You see, Luke is framing all the way from the beginning with Moses, there was one very first recorded creational meal where indeed a husband and wife took and ate and their eyes were opened. And the reality that flowed from what they saw was sin, death, and decay. And now here it is, we eat at table with a stranger. And he takes the food, he breaks the food, he blesses the food, and he gives it to the, to the man and his wife. They eat and their eyes are opened. Only in this we see the first meal recorded in a new creation. The first recorded meal of the old creation that is passing away in need of redemptive change and nourishment. And now here at Luke 24 with Clopas and his wife, we see the very first recorded meal of the new creation that has come. Whereupon eating, Clopas and his wife recognized Jesus himself risen from the dead. One author comments this way, Jesus himself is the beginning and the sign of this new world, a world of new and deathless creation, still physical, only somehow transformed. You see, by natural birth, all of us in here, all humanity, shares in the first creational meal. By federal representation, Adam represented us in the garden. You know the story that Clopas and Mary needed to be refreshed on the significance of that story. So he began with Moses, and then he went to the prophets, and he explained all of the scriptures how this is what it points to, the need for a Savior and Redeemer, the need for a Messiah to come. The serpent would bite his heel, and he'd crush his head. He told them this story of how how a woman took and she ate and she gave and he ate and then their eyes were opened and at table he took bread, he broke it and he gave and their eyes were opened to realities, new realities. A new creation has begun. One that redeems and renews. So each of us are, by natural generation of our own parents, sharers in the first creational meal. When Eve and Adam together, when they ate and were deceived and their eyes were opened, we all fell with them. And now here is the new creational meal, the revelation of Christ as a redeemer of Israel. And we only come to share in this meal through faith. But to each one who does exercise faith in Christ, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right? So when they were at table with them, he took the bread, he blessed the bread, he broke the bread, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Well, if anyone is in him, if anyone is in Christ, He himself is a new creation. 
You see, they belong to that new world, a world of new and deathless creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old, the old order, when she took and she ate and she gave and he ate and their eyes were open, the old is passing away. Behold, he has taken, he has broken, he has blessed, and he has given, and their eyes are open. The new has come. You see, if we step back just for a moment and consider the entire process whereby Clopas and his wife's eyes were made to see Jesus. So you step back and you just look at the entire chapter together. And you think, how did they go from a place where they cannot see him to a place where their eyes were opened and they recognized him? There are two significant pieces that our Lord used to transform them from blind to sight. And it's the same way with each and every one of us in the room right now. Now, again, it might be more particularized. It's not Jesus himself physically who meets us on the street. But he comes to us through the same medium. How are your eyes changed? How were they changed in your testimony? How were your eyes changed? How do they continually experience change? same way that Clopas and his wife's do, through the external word that comes to you and the nourishment of the sacraments. It's the ordinary means whereby God resalinizes the salt, whereby he brings reconciliation, whereby he continues to give vision and renewal encouragement and sustenance on the pilgrim's journey. There is nothing particular to Clopas and Mary that isn't available to you this very morning. He comes to you and you hear him in his word and you see him in your table. If we look at this text in a different light and we take scripture away from the sacramental meal. So if, if we just skipped, if we, if, if we skipped the first portion of Luke 24 where he just exposed the entire Bible to them in its epicenter as himself, if we took that portion of preaching away and we jumped down to the table where he broke it and then their eyes were open to see, we would have nothing more than a sacrament of superstition. If you take away scripture, the sacrament becomes a superstition. Many of us know believers who have that perspective. Perhaps we would even say it's Romish. Take away scripture and the sacrament becomes a superstition. This is why their eyes were blinded so they couldn't see him. Take away the sacrament and scripture becomes an intellectual or emotional exercise detached from real life. The church of Christ, according to Luke, needs both. And we need them inseparably linked. That where the table is provided, the word is first preached. And the external word that comes to us is how we hear of him. And then he also nourishes us in a recognizable way as we receive of his table through faith. They must be put together When word and sacrament remain wedded, as they do here in Luke 24, 
we have transformation and ongoing nourishment in our pilgrim's journey. Then you notice the end of the text of their eyes being opened and they recognized him and he vanished away from their sight. Now, again, how exactly, because we know that the body is physical and he'll prove that later. Um, so what, what the, the next dimensional body looks like and its metaphysical components, I, I, I just don't know, you don't know, we don't know collectively, but we do know it's physical and very real. Every bit is real as the dimension you're in now. Every bit is real. And he proves that through various uh, proofs that are going to come in the next few days. He spends the next 40 days, if you go to Acts 1, spending that time preaching and speaking to all of the people. So again, the, 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 the hereafter, the next dimension of your pilgrim's existence will be very physical and very real. Every bit is real here. Perhaps we could argue even more real. Um, so, but how it is that he can vanish from their sight, what exactly took place, how exactly he came and went, um, I just, we just can't speak to. Um, but it belongs to a new creation that we all share in through hope and faith. So just to conclude the text of verse 32, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? So, so, so they, had, they, they heard the preaching. It came to them, and it transformed them. And then they saw him in the table. What a beautiful picture of the pilgrim journey. Verse 33, and they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, Interesting there, as we're tracking it, it's rather late at night, and and they're um, extremely excited that they're up and they're out, and they're going back to Jerusalem to tell everybody what just happened. And that's what comes in the close of the text. So all in one day, on the third day, this day of fulfillment, the ladies go early in the morning to find him, and they don't. And then on Emmaus, the stranger appears, and he speaks to the pilgrims on the way. But he is the way. So he explains that to them as they're approaching the village of Emmaus. And now they're going back, all in the same day of fulfillment, to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them, gathered together, the early church gathered together, disciples together with the 11 leading. Verse 34 saying, the Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, that is, on the way. And how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As far as the uh, appeal to Simon, uh, unsure. They, they either on the way back to Jerusalem ran into Simon, and, and there's, there, there's, there's discussion there. Um, why they cite it to bolster their own case. They told them what happened to them, and they also cite, by the way, he appeared to Simon. Th- this is real. We have seen him. I just want to impress upon you in the last, once again, the significance of the two means of ordinary grace that come to you and are held out to you on your pilgrim's journey that mustn't be forsaken. I I just want to impress that upon you, if nothing else from this text, but to see the two ordinary means of grace that stand out to you on your Emmaus journey, on your pilgrims being on the way. They are the word externally preached to you. That's why it's not, if I can make it to Lord's Day or not. It's I'm a pilgrim on the way and I must. 
Because if I don't, I won't have the external word preached to me, which is an ordinary means whereby I will take my next step as a pilgrim in my journey. It, it can't be negotiable. We need it. I don't say that, and it's hard to say because oftentimes you're like, well, I know you look at it all week and you want a bunch of people here to be able to hear what you had to say and what you studied. I know it's significant to the ministers. Right. So it puts me in an awkward place to say, be here. It's it's the means. I need it. When, When I preach it outward, it reciprocates to me. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. Clopas and Mary needed to hear it. It was, we can't tell who he is. Who are you? Well, I'm blinding you. Divine passive, your eyes are blinded. Why? Because what must be sown into you is the need that you have for the word of promise. I'm going to begin with Moses and the prophets and tell you the whole entire Bible is about me. And you need to hear it. Not just today, but all the time. Because you're a pilgrim on the way. There are many things that seek to devour you. They thought they were saving him. Hey, you ought to stay with us tonight. It's not safe to walk out in the dark. No, I'm giving you what you need because it isn't safe. You need the word externally preached to you. They covered both. Did not our hearts burn when we listened and we told everybody how he was revealed to us in his table? You can't eat the Lord's Supper at home. You can't serve it to your neighbor. And you can't have it over brunch. You receive it from the church and its ministers, whereby you are nourished in your faith. This is the core of Christianity for Luke. Word and sacrament as instituted by our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that we would receive this gospel account and the way in which the story is told, that we'd receive it appropriately to our own soul, that we belong through faith to a new creation, that there are two meals that are held out to us in the Bible. Naturally, we fell in one, and through faith we can be transformed and nourished in another. Lord, let our eyes be opened through the preaching of your word and the serving of your table. Nourish us on our pilgrim's journey. Let us learn from Clopas and Mary the instruction of our Lord recorded in Luke. Bless us as your people. This very ordinary Sunday would be that ordinary means of grace and transformative for us, one degree of glory to another. In your name I pray, amen.